G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 28. Luke chapter 2, verse 47, to chapter 23, verse 25. The arrest and trials of Jesus. The story now moves steadily towards the death of Jesus. It is told with remarkable economy and simplicity in all four Gospels. Not even the failure of the leading apostle and founder of the early church is left out. We're going to read chapter 22, verses 47 to 53. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Question 1. Would you be thinking more or less of the eleven now, if they had not tried to defend Jesus with their two swords, probably against an overwhelming force? Why? Their reaction to the approach of the crowd which Mark describes as armed with swords and clubs, is an entirely natural one. It shows that they were not cowards. It also shows that they had not taken all of Jesus' message really into their hearts and minds. Few of us have. Presumably the clash of one or two swords could easily have led to a more general skirmish in which Jesus could have been killed. But in the purposes of God, His son had to be tried, falsely accused, condemned, and judicially killed. Without the legal decision of guilty, Jesus would not have been dying for our sins. The universal responsibility of everybody for his death, symbolized by those directly involved, would not have been incurred. A great many prophecies such as hanging on a tree in Deuteronomy 21, would not have been fulfilled. Now we read verses 54 to 62 of this chapter 22. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him, 
and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Question 2. Peter lied and lived to do much good work for his Lord. Was he justified in doing so? Should we do the same under certain circumstances? What circumstances? Is a life more important than the truth? When and when not? In a way, it is impossible to answer these questions. We do not know, and neither did Peter, what would have happened if he had not lied. A life is more important in many ways than telling the truth, yet the truth or the lie may define the life forever. In the history of the church, many, many people have refused to deny Christ and died. Let's hope we never have to answer this question for real. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, which read, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Those words could be taken as a comment on what Judas did. Question 3. In the light of those verses, what was the essential difference between the actions of Judas and Peter? What warning should we take from this? And what encouragement? The action of Judas was taken completely deliberately. Peter stumbled unwillingly into his denials. So many of our sins occur when we too stumble unwillingly into error. It is a great relief for us that Peter was not cast away from his position, but lived to do so much good and die for his Lord in due course about thirty years later in Rome. Now we read chapter 22, verse 63, through to chapter 23, verse 25. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the 
elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. 
So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. There seemed to have been many meetings that night in the effort to find grounds to condemn Jesus. Luke only records a trial at daybreak in verse 66 of chapter 22. Mark records one in the early part of the night. Matthew and John add further details. Luke was writing to Theophilus, a senior Roman citizen, and that probably affected which episodes he was most interested in. Question 4. In that case, what things in the trials is he most likely to have wanted to concentrate on? It was important to him to try and show the Romans in as good a light as possible. Pilate had a very bad reputation in the Roman world anyway, so Luke was not concerned with putting him in a good light. But he did want to show that there was a fair trial, and that Jesus was condemned partly as a result of Jewish agitation, and partly for Roman political reasons. His main concern was to establish who Jesus really was. So we have three titles in these verses. Messiah, uh, equivalent to Christ, which means the Jewish expected and anointed one. The Son of Man and the Son of God. Let me read the verses. In verse 67, If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And in verse 2 of the next chapter, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. Then, for the Son of Man, we go to verse 68. If I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, is what Jesus said. And for Son of God, they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You are right in saying, I am. Question 5. When Peter looked back at these events, he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And we gather that from what he said in his sermon at Pentecost. Let me read some of those verses to you. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him. Then later on he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his de descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, 
And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What made Peter so sure? If the councillors accepted that Jesus was the Messiah, what would that have meant for them? What actions would it have committed them to take? Peter remembered the resurrection above all. That was the ultimate proof that Jesus was who he said he was. If the council had recognized Jesus as the sort of Messiah they expected, they would have been in immediate revolt against Rome. They thought they would have had to take up arms and tackle the Roman army, which no one could do successfully. Now we're going to read from Daniel chapter 7 once again. First from verse 7. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And that would have been equated by them with the Roman Empire. Then verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And they would understand that as being about the Messiah approaching God himself. And then we go to verse 17. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then he goes on to talk about the fourth beast and finally comes to saying this. The court will sit and the power of the fourth beast will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Question 6. How would the council have understood what Jesus said, that is, when he said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You're right in saying, I am. How would the Roman authorities have understood his claim, if they had known the background? The council would have thought that Jesus was claiming to be the one who would save Israel presumably by ridding the land of the Romans, as the Maccabees had succeeded in doing 190 years earlier. They did not want that to be attempted, as it would mean they would lose their control of the nation, to say nothing of the danger of a war against the Romans. 
the Romans would have thought there was another wave of rebellion coming. A previous Caesar, Augustus, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. After Julius was killed, he was venerated as a god, which made Augustus a kind of son of God. Question 7. What would the idea that Jesus was the Son of God have meant to the council? What implications would that have had for the Roman authorities? Angels, Israel as a people, and the King of Israel are called sons of God in the Old Testament. The last of these, the King of Israel, is the meaning implied here the council would have understood him to be saying that he was the king of Israel. The Romans would have thought him to be claiming to be one of the many gods of those days and probably would not have been too concerned by that. As Messiah, Jesus was the representative Israelite and is now the representative Christian. We read that from Romans chapter 5 verses 15 17. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam that is, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We are in Christ, in the Messiah. As Son of Man, He is a human being standing in our place, as Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. As Son of God, He is the Saviour who, being God, is able to die for us all. Again, Hebrews says that in chapter 2. Let's have a look at those verses now. For this reason, He had to be made like His brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, that is, because he was himself a man. But, we also read, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And we also read, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Because he was a man, he was able to die for us, because he was God, 
his death was effective and sufficient for us. The crowd that shouted, crucify him, crucify him, must, in part at least, have been the same one we read about glorifying him as he entered Jerusalem. How can we account for such a major turnaround? We tend to become excited if we're in a big crowd of people. It's then easy for a few people to sway a crowd. The crowd has a sort of collective decision-making ability, which can lead to people being involved in ways they would not be as individuals if they had time to think. Beware crowds. Question 8. Who was most responsible for the condemnation of Jesus? The crowd? The Jewish leaders? The Roman authorities? Or Jesus himself by what he said? Were we also responsible as those needing redemption? The very fact that this question can be asked proves that there was a collective responsibility. Ordinary people, religious leaders and political leaders were all involved. That responsibility was so widely spread reflects the fact that we are all responsible for what happened. Another obvious question we can ask ourselves but never really answer until it happens is the trial exposed the commitments and loyalties of all those involved the council members, Pilate, Jews and Romans, the crowd, the disciples and Jesus. Faced with similarly difficult choices, how will we react? Will we cling to our securities and dreams and avoid moving out of our comfort zones or will we take up our cross and follow him? And we end at that point. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.